Chapter Seventeen of the Green Odyssey by Philip Jose Farmer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen. Green stayed far enough behind the prisoners and savages to keep out of sight if any man should turn. The path was narrow, winding between crowding trunks and under low branches. The soil underfoot was rich and springy, as if composed of generations of leaves. Green estimated he must have gone at least a mile and a half, not as the crow flies, but more like a drunk trying to find his way home. Then, without warning, the forest stopped, and a clearing was before him. In the midst of this stood a village of about ten log houses with thatched roofs. Six were rather small outhouses, serving one purpose or another. The four large ones were, he guessed, long houses for communal living. They were grouped about a central spot, in which were the remains of several large fires beneath big iron pots and spits. Clay tanks were scattered here and there. These held rainwater. Before each house was a twenty-foot-high totem-pole, brightly painted, and around it many slender poles holding skulls. The prisoners were led into one of the outhouses and the door barred. A man stationed himself at the front, squatting with his back to the wall and holding a spear in one hand. The others greeted the old women and younger children who had been left behind. Though they spoke in a language Green didn't understand, they were obviously describing what they'd found at the wreck. Some of the old crones then began piling brushwood and small logs under one of the large iron kettles. Presently they had a fire blazing brightly. Others brought out glasses and cups of precious metals, loot from wrecks. These were filled with some sort of liquor, probably a native beer, judging from the foam that spilled over the sides. One of the young boys began idly tapping upon a drum, and soon was beating out a monotonous, simple rhythm. It looked as if they were going to make a night of it. But after a few drinks the warriors arose, picked up jugs of liquor, and walked into the woods leaving one man to guard the prisoner's hut. All the children over the age of four left with them, trailing along in the dark, though the warriors made no effort to slow their pace so the children could keep up. Green waited until he was sure the spearsmen were some distance away, then rose. His muscles protested at any movement, and pains shot through his head, knee, and ankle, but he ignored them and limped around the edge of the clearing until he came to the back of one of the longhouses. He slipped inside and stood by the side of the doorway. It was more illuminated than he thought at first because of the several large and open windows which admitted moonbeams. Hens sleepily clucked at him, and one of the midget pigs grunted questioningly. Suddenly something soft brushed across his ankles. Startled, he jumped to one side. His heart which had been beating fast enough before, threatened to hammer a hole in his ribs. He crouched, straining to see what it was. Then a soft mewing nearby told him. He relaxed a little and stretched out a hand, saying, "'Here, kitty, kitty, come here.' But the cat walked by, his tail raised and a look of disdain on his face as he disappeared through the door. Seeing the animal reminded Green of something about which he was anxious. That was whether the natives kept dogs or not. He hadn't seen any and thought that surely if there were some he'd have long ago heard the noisy beasts. Undoubtedly by now 
he should have a whole pack of the obnoxious monsters snarling at his heels. Silently he walked into the long single room with its high ceiling. From thick rafters hung rolled-up curtains, which he supposed would be let down to make a semi-private room for any families that wished it. From them also hung vegetables, fruit and meat, chickens, rabbits, piglets, squirrels, huber, and venison. There were no human parts, so he guessed that the flesh of man was not so much a staple diet to these people as a food for religious purposes. All he did know was that he would have to take some meat with him. He gathered strips of dried huber, rolled them into a ball, and stuffed them in a bag. Then he took down an iron-headed spear and a sharp steel knife from their rack on the wall. Knife and belt and spear in hand, he went out the back door. Outside he stopped to listen to the far-off beating of drums and the chanting of voices. There must be quite a celebration around the wreck. Good, he muttered to himself. If they get drunk and pass out, I'll have time for what I want to do. Staying well within the shadows of the trees, he picked his way to the back of the hut in which the prisoners were. From where he stood he could see that there were only six old women, about all the island's economy could afford, he supposed, and some ten infants, all toddlers. Most of these, once the excitement caused by the noisy warriors had subsided with their leave-taking, had laid down close to the fire and gone to sleep. The only one who might give real trouble, aside from the guard, was a boy of ten, the one who was now tapping softly on the drum. At first Green could not understand why he hadn't gone with the others of his age to the wreck, but the empty stare and the unblinking way he looked into the fire showed why. Green had no doubt that if he were to come close enough to the lad he'd see that the eyeballs were filmed over with white. Blindness was nothing rare on this filthy planet. Satisfied as to everyone's location, he crept to the back of the hut and examined the walls. They were made of thick poles driven into the ground and bound together with rope taken from a roller's rigging. There were plenty of openings for him to look through, but it was so dark that he could see only the vague outlines moving about. He put his mouth to one of the holes and said softly, Amra! Somebody gasped. A little girl began to cry, but was quickly hushed up. Amra answered, faint with joy, Alad, it can't be you! I am not thy father's ghost, he replied, and wondered at the same time how he could manage to inject any levity at all into the midst of this desperate situation. He was always doing it. Perhaps it was not the product of a true humor, but more like the giggle of a person who was embarrassed or under some stress, more the result of hysteria than anything else, his particular type of safety valve. "'Here's what I'm going to do,' he said. "'Listen carefully, then repeat it after me, so I'll know you have it down.' She had only to hear it once to give it back to him letter-perfect. He nodded. "'Good girl. I'm going now.' Alan. "'Yes,' he replied impatiently. "'If this doesn't work, if anything should happen to you or me, remember that I love you.' He sighed. Even in the midst of this the eternal feminine emerged. "'I love you, too, but that hasn't got much to do with this situation.' Before she could answer and waste more valuable time he slid away, crawling on all fours around the corner of the hut. When he was where one more pace would have brought him into view of the guard and the old crones, he stopped. 
All this while he'd been counting the seconds. As soon as he'd clocked five minutes, which he thought would never pass, he rose and stepped swiftly around the corner, spear held in front of him. The guard was drinking out of his mug with his eyes closed and his throat exposed. He fell over with green spear plunged through his windpipe just above the breastbone. The mug fell onto his lap and gushed its amber and foam over his legs. Green withdrew the blade and whirled, ready to run upon anybody who started to flee. But the old women were huddled on their knees around a large board on which they were rolling some flour, cackling and talking shrilly. The blind boy continued tapping, his open eyes glaring into the fire. Only one saw Green, a boy of about three. Thumb in mouth he stared with great round eyes at this stranger, but he was either too horrified to utter a sound or else he did not understand what had happened and was waiting to find out his elder's reactions before he offered his own. Green lifted one finger to his lips in the universal sign of silence, then turned and lifted up the bar over the door. Amra rushed out and took the guard's spear from her husband. The dead man's knife went to Inzok's and his other knife to Aga, a tall, muscular woman, who was captain of the female deckhands and who had once killed a sailor while defending her somewhat dubious honor. At the same time the chattering of the hag stopped. Green whirled around, and the silence was broken by shrieks. Frantically the hags tried to scramble up from their stiffened knees and run away, but Green and the women were upon them before they could take more than a few steps. Not one of them reached the forest. It was grim work, one in which the Ifinican women took fierce joy. Without wasting a look on the poor old carcasses, Green rounded up the children and the blind boy and put them in the prisoner's hut. He had to hold Agabac from slaughtering them. Amra, he was pleased to see, had made no motion to help them in their intended butchery. She, understanding his brief look, replied, I could not kill a child, even the spawn of these fiends. It would be like stabbing Paxi. Green saw one of the women holding his daughter. He ran to her, took Paxi out of her arms, and kissed the baby. Soon Amra's ten-year-old child by the sculptor came shyly and stood by his side, waiting to be noticed. He kissed her, too. You're getting to be a big girl soon, he said. Do you suppose you could tag along behind your mother and carry Paxi for her? She has to carry her spear." The girl, a big-eyed, red-headed beauty, nodded and took the baby. Green eyed the long houses with the idea of setting them afire. He decided not to when it became apparent that the wind would carry sparks to the hut in which the savages' children were. Moreover, though a fire would undoubtedly create consternation among the roisterers at the wreck and keep them busy for some time, it would also cause them to start tracking down the refugees just that much sooner. Besides, there was the possibility of setting fire to the forest, wet though it was. He didn't want to destroy his only hiding place. He directed some women to go into the longhouse and load themselves with as much food and weapons as they could carry. In a few minutes he had the party ready to leave. We'll take this path that leads out of the village, away from the path that goes to the wreck," he said. Let's hope it goes to the other edge of the island, where we may find some small rollers on which we can escape. I presume these savages have some kind of sailing craft. 
This path was as narrow and winding as the other one. It worked in the general direction of the western shore, and the savages were on the eastern shore. Their way at first led upward, sometimes through passes formed by two large rocks. Several times they had to skirt little lakes, catch basins for rain. Once a fish flopped out of the water, scaring them. The island was fairly self-sufficient, what with its fish, rabbits, squirrels, wild fowl, pigs, and various vegetables and fruit. He estimated that if the village was in the center of the island, then the mass should have a surface area of about one and a half square miles. Rough though the land was and thickly covered with grass, the place should offer cover for one refugee. For one, yes, but not for six women and eight children. End of chapter 17